This morning I want to talk with you about the gospel according to Job. And I'd ask you to turn there in your Bibles with me. Turn to Job chapter 1 as a starting point. And then I'll ask you just to join me in committing our time to the Lord one more time. Our God and our Father, we are again thankful to be here, to be worshiping you. Thankful for your holy word. Thankful for the hope of the gospel. Thankful, Lord, for every soul you brought here. And Lord, we acknowledge we need you. We can do nothing without you. So grant to us help from above, O God. Change us. Those who are already believers, change us, mold us, shape us, that we might be more like our Savior. And Lord, change the ones who come in not knowing you, O God. Set them free and show them goodness. O God, we ask for your mercy in this hour. We plead it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God never changes his plan of salvation. God never changes the way he deals with sinners and has never changed in any way or at any time. Nevertheless, God has been pleased in the rolling out of the, of the gospel plan to do it through progressive revelation. And this morning, uh, we're going to look at the understanding of a man who appeared very early in in gospel history, if you will. But we just note that God used many types and shadows and prophets. He often foretold events that could not fully, they could not fully grasp. And they, they along with the angels, longed to look forward and to understand the things that were being shown them. So we have these things more fully before us. In fact, in the table, we looked back at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, even as we look forward to his return. But this one that we'll speak of only looked forward. He had no reference for looking back in that sense. But what we're going to look at this morning really is a fulfillment of Job's desire. We'll see that a little bit later on. But the very thing he longed for some 4,000 or so years ago is being fulfilled today as we read these scriptures. So we'll look at the gospel according to Job. Uh, We're going to look at the background, Job's spirit, Job's message, and Job's desire, and then with God's blessing we'll apply these things. So uh, we'll first turn then to Job chapter 1, where we'll read the first five verses together. Job chapter 1, verse 1, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So as we look at this background of Job, we see that he was a man of faith, right? God says of him that he was blameless, he was upright, he was turning away from evil. But so he has this blamelessness in his character. 
But we need to understand when the word of God says Job was blameless, the word of God does not say that Job was sinless. It's important to understand. In fact, Job's own words make this plain to us. In Job 9, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then Job answered and said, Truly, I know it is so, responding to one of his, his helpers, but how, can it, but how can a man be righteous before God? God says he's blameless, and Job says, But how can I be righteous before God? Again, further, he says, I am blameless, yet I do not know myself. That's down in Job 9, verse 21. Job says, I'm blameless. That is, I know of no moral blemish, obvious blemish in my heart. I'm not aware of anything. He said, but I don't trust my own heart. He seems to have a sense that his own heart is not trustworthy entirely. In Job 9, 14 and 15, he says this, How then can I answer him, meaning God, and choose my words to reason with him? For though I were righteous, I could not answer him, I would beg mercy of my judge. So I think we need to understand as we look at Job, he was a man of character. He was a man who was blameless before God, and yet he was not a man who was sinless, and he was aware of this. Now, he was a man uh, that uh, took good care of his family. He was very attentive to them spiritually. He instructed them. He was a man of integrity. Notice Eliphaz. The Temanite uh, said this of him in Job 4. Surely you have instructed many, and you have, inst- you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have strengthened the feeble knees. So here is this man who is in some ways accusing Job, but at any rate he says, you have done good things. You've walked in integrity. You've helped others. And his integrity, in fact, is commended by God. In Job 2, verses 3, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, blameless and an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he he holds fast his integrity, although you incited him against me to destroy him without a cause. So even after Job is tested in the, the very serious ways he's tested, God says of him, he holds fast his integrity. This is part of Job's character. A man of faith, a man of integrity, a man of character, a man of family piety. He instructed his family. We know he instructed them because he would call to them and they would come back to him when he would sanctify them, when he would do the offerings for them. So he was one that led his family by instruction, no doubt by example, by prayer, by watchfulness. The very, very good character of him. He was also a man of wealth, and he had great station in society. He was the greatest of all the men of the East, we're told. By today's standards, this man would have been a multi-millionaire, maybe beyond. He was respected, even to the point of acting as a local judge. He was a defender of the poor and the helpless. Turn with me to Job chapter 29 for a moment. I want to just read in Job 29... Speaking about Job's character, his wealth, his station. And this is important because this is Job himself in the days when he's longing under trial and, and challenge. And he's remembering the way it was. So let's, let's let Job tell us about his character. Job 29, beginning in verse 1. Job further continued his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months past, 
as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and when by his light I walked through darkness, just as I was in the days of my prime, when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me. I'll just pause for a second. In all of Job's greatness, Job acknowledges God every step of the way, but he's remembering this is where he was because of what God was doing. Going back, continuing then, when my children were around me, when my steps were bathed with cream, and the rock poured out rivers of oil for me, when I went out to the gate by the city, when I, looked, when I took my seat in the open square, the young men saw me and hid, and the aged arose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and put their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, then it blessed me, and when the eye saw, then it approved me. Because I delivered the poor who cried out, the fatherless and the one who had no helper. The blessing of a perishing man came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, and I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor, and I searched out the case that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from their teeth. Then I said, I shall die in my nest and multiply my days as the sand. My root is spread out to the waters, and the dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is fresh within me, and my bow is renewed in my hand. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for me. And after my words, they did not speak again. Then my speech settled on them as dew. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouth wide for the spring rain. If I mocked at them, they did not believe it. In the light of my countenance, they did not cast down. I chose the way for them and sat as chief. So I dwelt as a king in the army, as one who comforts mourners. You get a sense of who Job was? He's wealthy. He's powerful. He's influential. He has respect. He is a man of righteousness and compassion. He has an incredible character. Well, but he's also a man that knew tragedy, right? We know the initial trials fell upon Job all in one day. Monumental, life-altering um, events. We're not going to look at those in particular in great detail, but he lost all of his wealth in one day. All his wealth was lost or stolen from him. His servants were killed. People whom he cared for and, and, and no doubt loved, that is his servants, all of his children were taken from him in one day. He lost his health and the esteem of his family, friends, and neighbors, and that may be more of a prolonged part of his suffering. Job's wife became a potential snare to him and despised him, at one point saying to him, if you still hold your integrity, curse God and die, right? She wasn't a great help to him. Job had friends who were worthless counselors who in their blind attempts to deal with Job tormented his soul even more and more. And now I'm going to ask you to just turn to Job 19 for a moment. And again, we just want to hear these, this um, part of the, the, the background from Job's own words. Job 19, beginning in verse 1, Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have reproached me. You are not ashamed that you have wronged me. And if indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. 
If indeed you exalt yourselves against me and plead my disgrace against me, know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. Let's just stop here before we continue. Not, not everything that Job says is right. Sometimes Job does not speak right. But it is true in one sense that God has brought all this upon him because the Satan could not have afflicted him if God had not allowed it. But nevertheless, you see the distress of Job, of Job here. Continuing in verse 7, If I cry out concerning wrong, I am not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. He has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness in my paths. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. My hope he has uprooted like a tree. He has also kindled his wrath against me, and he counts me as one of his enemies. His troops come together and build up their road against me. They encamp all around my tent. He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. If I call my servant, but he gives no answer, I beg him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. And I am repulsive to the children of my own body. Even young children despise me. I arise and they speak against me. All my close friends abhor me. And those whom I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and to my flesh. And I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. You see here, we get a sense Job is in a very, very bad way. Job's Job's life here is, is not the picture life of what everyone wants for themselves, right? So one of the things that we're just, just thinking about this before we go on is I love the fact that in the scriptures, God does not sugarcoat things. He tells it like it is. Job is his servant. Job loves him. And Job had a very hard time. Now we know that God allowed this to happen because he was showing to the devil that uh, faith does maintain it it is persevering it does last but he's also teaching job about job and you can see that later in the book but god is in control sometimes job job loses sight of that but job is in a very tough way there's no aspect of his life that has not been taken his possessions his family his health his sense of god's nearness is gone at this time but it is only his sense of it but let's look at how he responds to tragedy in Job chapter 1, verses 20 and 22. Then Job arose, tore his, tore, arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Here's a man of faith, sorely tried. Here's a man completely overwhelmed. And yet his response is to worship God as God, because God remains God no matter what comes our way. Job acknowledges that when he came into the world, he had nothing. He acknowledged when he left the world, he'd take none of his possessions with him. He understood all of that, but he worshipped God. Blessed be the name of God, or blessed be the name of the Lord. And it says Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And it's important that that's there, right? 
Because he says in this passage, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. But we know it was the devil that took away. How then is he not sinning? Well, because again, the sovereignty of God overruling in every situation, Job can trace back his deprivations, his troubles, his trials, ultimately to God who is sovereign, who will not let a hair of his head fall unless he ordains it. And so he did not sin. So in his response to tragedy, he, he worships God. He has a holy resignation. But in other passages, we see that he, there's some confusion, occasionally bitterness. There's always, there's some anger there. There's a persistent seeking of God. And there is what I would call a wavering but unfailing faith. He's, there, there's times when he wavers a bit, but he, his faith does not fail. So God is sovereign even in the darkest trials of life. We could say in some senses God brought this trial to him. God not only gave him permission to test Job, but he also set positive bounds of, so as, in terms of how far Satan could go, could go excuse me, in his trials. So Job understood that God was the giver of every good and perfect gift. And he had the power to afflict or the power to bless. And he still deserves to be worshipped, honored, and obeyed. And that's a good point for all of us. God is to be worshipped by us no matter what comes our way in this life. Now, before I leave these introductory points, I want to touch on something more fully. And, and some may be wondering here, I know this is the gospel according to Job. Gospel means good news. And so far, I haven't seen a lot of good. But bear with me. We'll get to the good news portion of this in a moment. But before we do, uh, let's look at this final point because it's important. And that is that Job, this man who is blameless, upright, fearing God, who God held out as exhibit A to the devil as a man of faith, this man, this same man, despaired almost to death. Now that's important to know. That is to say that believers don't sail through life without worries or cares or difficulties. Job despaired almost unto death. And if you think maybe perhaps I'm exaggerating this, let's look at Job 7, and verse 14 and following. I'll read this for you. Job speaking, When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will, call, will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that my soul chooses strangling and death rather than, my, rather than my body. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. You see, he's speaking with God here. He's saying, I'm, I'm trying to get comfort on my bed. I'm trying to ease all my pains. So I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to have an extended time of sleep. And when I do that, I have dreams. I have visions. I'm I'm tormented even there, and you terrify me. And he said, you're terrifying me so much in the condition I'm in that my soul chooses strangling in death rather than my body. He says, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Some of us have been there at times, right? You get that sense of life is heavy, it's hard, you don't want to live anymore. Job was there, according to what he says. Then again, further in Job 6, it says this, Job answered and said, Oh, that my grief were fully weighed. In other words, if, if you could just measure up my grief and see how big it is, but that's not happening. He says, oh, that my grief were fully weighed and my calamity laid with it on the scales. So he's got grief 
and calamity. He says, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. He's saying, if you took all my troubles, all my difficulties, all the grief within me, and you could put them into some great big cosmic front-end loader and load in all the sand of the sea and just dump it on me, that's what I feel like. He says, I've got this weight. Oh, that my grief were fully weighed and my calamity laid with it on the scales, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. See, he knows he's been wrong. Then he says, oh, that I might have my request. Okay, Job, what do you want? What's your ask? What are you asking God for? He says, that God would grant me the thing that I long for, that it would please God to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. Job is despairing, very heavily despairing. Again, Job 3, why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death, but it does not come, and search for it more than hidden treasure, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. You see what Job is saying? Lord, why are you continuing to give me life? Cut me off. I want the grave. I'm done with this. I long to die. That's Job's heart in the midst of these trials. It's significant seeing this. So we have a sense of Job's character, which is, it's wonderful character. He's gone through very deep, deep trials designed by God for God's glory, ultimately for Job's good as well. Now let's turn now and see the good news of the gospel. Now you might ask, what is what good news can Job have for us here? Isn't this the guy saying, I want to die, I want God to crush me, I want God to cut me off, I, I'm tired of life. What good news does he have? Is Job going to say, here's the good news, fear God and all this can happen to you? Well, of course not, right? Is it buck up and you get your stuff back? No, no, it's not that. Is it, it is what James meant in, in chapter 511 when he says indeed we count them blessed who endure that is we count them happy who endure you have heard of the perseverance of job right and seen the end intended by the lord you see there's a there's an intended end in job's suffering and james tells us that the that we would see that the lord is very compassionate and merciful So in all that Job has gone through, God's end is that we would see that God is compassionate and merciful. So then, let's take a look at what we have here. Job's spirit, secondly. That's our second point, Job's spirit. And again, reading from Job 19, 23, and 24, which is the beginning of our actual text for today. Oh, that my words were written... Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. See, Job has a desire. He has something he wants to say, and it comes out of his spirit. And the way that I understood his spirit looking through this is that he has what I would call a Christian spirit. His disposition, his desires, and his selfless love are clear evidence of God's inward working within him, right? He has that Christian spirit. It was evident before his afflictions, and it is yet evident here when he says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and led forever. And I, I describe it as a Macedonian spirit, right? If you want to turn your Bibles to 
2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. I'm going to just show you what I mean here in a moment. This Christian spirit, which has this Macedonian aspect of it. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 5. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Verse 2, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Now, they have this, the Macedonians have this generous spirit that is overflowing in a great trial of affliction and their abundance of joy, their deep poverty, their affliction, and yet their joy in serving God. And this is the same spirit that Job has. Job doesn't have any material goods to give anyone here. He, but he, nevertheless, he is still overflowing with this desire to give. That is what's partly shown in this passage. Job was concerned about the spiritual well-being of generations yet unborn. Now, why do I say generations yet unborn? The words that he uses to describe what he wants to write, not just in a book, but they're inscribed in a book, engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. His desire is that what he has to say would be preserved for future generations. So he has a concern that goes beyond his own lifespan. He wants to share this good news that he has. Now, he has, we're, as we're reading this now, we're hearing about it now, but let's continue. He has a generous spirit. If you want to turn to James 2 in verse 14 for a moment. Again, this is the spirit that's within Job, I believe. Job, James 2, verses, verse 14 what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needy for the body, what does it profit? Thus, I, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith. And I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted for him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And Job's faith was not a dead faith. Before his afflictions, it was evident. He met the needs of the poor. 
the needy, the widows, the fatherless. He sought justice. He did many things that showed he was concerned not only with speaking about things, but dealing with them. But even now, even though he has not money, Job still has a faith that is producing works. So, um, there's one more aspect then about Job's spirit. And it's an evangelistic aspect, right? Um, If you think of Acts chapter 3 and verse 1, Now Peter and John went up together in the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple and ask for alms, and fixing his eyes on on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So again, Job does not have financial means. He's not meeting anybody's needs right now, but he does have one thing. He has this good news, this message that he wants written in a book, this message he wants recorded for all generations. He has this which he's busting at the gut, as it were, to get out, that he must share. Like Peter, Job has something very precious to share. So, what did Job know that carried him along? What was this great message that Job wanted to share? What was it that marked out his life, that flowed out of his spirit? What was the substance of all these things? We're going to look at this thirdly under the title heading of Job's Message and Doctrine. Now let's just read our verses for today together again. Job 19, we're going to read verses 23 to 29. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you should say, how shall we persecute him, since the root of the matter is found in me, be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. Well, Job's message, the first part of his message is this. Job proclaimed the eternality of the soul. He talks about a future beyond the grave. God has put eternity on his heart. He has that eternity in mind. He believes that what is beyond the grave is better for him than the present life. He believes that this temporary light affliction is not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's very evident in his words, because he's clearly talking about life after death. He understands something of this. It's amazing as someone appearing so early in redemptive history that he has this understanding, but he does. Coming to the same verses, he has a doctrine of redemption. Look in verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. Job knows that there's a Redeemer. He knows that there is one who must come and do for him, which he cannot do for himself. 
He knows that there, there is one who it will come and faithfully buy him back, redeem him, who will come with a price that is acceptable to God. He knew that he could not earn his own salvation or escape God's wrath, even though he was blameless. And by the way, this is a good thing to think about. Sometimes you talk to people and ask them, well, how do you hope to be made right with God? How do you hope to go to heaven? They say, I'm pretty good. I gotta tell you, you may be pretty good. Measure yourself up against Job. If you're that good, Job still said he wasn't good enough. He also seemed to know that his sins could not be atoned for by the blood of bulls and goats. He made offerings and sacrifices to God, right? On behalf of his children. But he seems to know that those, while they are helpful and useful and right in that season, were not going to deliver his soul from God's righteous wrath. So he has the doctrine of the eternity of the soul, doctrine of redemption. He has the present and future life of the Redeemer. We, we don't want to pass over these things. Verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives. So he says, my Redeemer is alive now. He's in existence. He's real. He's alive. And he shall stand at last on the earth. And so Job is picturing time span that is very great here. And he says, my Redeemer is alive and will be alive at the end upon the earth. So he seems to understand the present and future life of the Redeemer. Because my Redeemer lives as present tense, shall stand at last on the earth as a very distant or future tense. Job does not know his name, right? Job doesn't know everything. He doesn't know that his Redeemer is Jesus of Nazareth. He doesn't know, perhaps, that he's the God. He may not know a lot of things, but he knows that there is a Redeemer, that he's alive and that he's coming and that he's going to help Job. He has some sense or understanding that somehow his Redeemer transcends time. But he also has the doctrine of the resurrection. Again, to me, this is very amazing, given the, you know, the the opening up of Revelation progressively in time, and yet somehow Job knows this. Job knows he's going to die. He's not saying somebody's going to get me out of this and next week we're going to be fine. He knows he will die. He knows that his flesh will rot. Some of us like to deny this. We don't want to think about these things. They're not fun. But Job knew that his flesh would rot. And Job trusts that he will rise from the grave, right? He says, after my skin is destroyed this I know so my skin is destroyed he's died the worms are eating his flesh after my skin is destroyed this I know that in my flesh I shall see God what what flesh are you going to see God with my flesh the flesh that was destroyed the flesh that God is going to bring back my flesh in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another what is he saying he's like I'm not talking figuratively about my future generations, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. I'm not saying I'm going to see God in them. I'm saying I'm going to see God in me, in my body, that God is going to raise from the dead and put back together. I doubt he has any understanding of how that will be. Nevertheless, he says it, and he trusts it. He will have a resurrected and perfected body. Now, our Bible plainly teaches us that Jesus is the resurrection and that there is a future resurrection of believer and unbeliever, right? The believer has a resurrection unto life, and the unbeliever has a resurrection unto condemnation. He gets that, right? A resurrection unto life for the believer. So he has this doctrine of the resurrection. But he has another thing, and this is, you know, again, it comes from a very small word. 
Look back at verse 25 for a second. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, right? That word my. Job understands that he has a personal relationship with the Redeemer. This is not some vague entity, some power, somebody that's way off in the distance. It's my Redeemer. He has this solid, personal, connective relationship to a Redeemer whom not seeing he loves. He So this is his understanding of this. He has a Redeemer. Not a vague, wishy-washy hope, but a solid hope that will not disappoint. He knows that a personal Redeemer whom is coming. He knows Job seems to know that somehow he belongs to his Redeemer and his Redeemer belongs to him. Again, there's no cold love in Job. Then finally, we have this doctrine of saving faith. All right, and we'll just, we look back to the end of this portion for a second. In verse 28, he says, If you should say, how shall we persecute him, since the root of the matter is found in me? And then he goes on. But he's talking about this root of the matter. And it's a saving faith. The point is somewhat of an inference, okay? But simply stated, Job understands that there is something within him, something that did not originate with him, that he refers to as the root of the matter. Perhaps thinking along the lines of the apostle, who says, by, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, that faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So he has the root of the matter in him. And we like to say, of course, we, you, this would be an unusual comment here, but no root, no fruit, right? You have to have the root of the matter. You have to have saving faith to produce fruit unto God, right? So Job has a doctrine of saving faith. God is at work within him, causing him to will and to do according to God's good pleasure. But then he also has the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Same verse, right? If you should say, how shall we persecute him? He's throwing it out there. My enemies should say this. He says, since the root of the matter is found in me, be afraid of the sword for yourselves. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that thou may know there is a judgment. Right? So what is, what is Job saying here? He answers this threat with great confidence. He has great confidence that he will hold up and he will survive and be delivered from their persecution because there's a divine hand upon him. He's not saying, if you get hit me, I'm going to get back at you. He's trusting in God. He has an understanding or a confidence that the root of the matter being present in him makes all the difference in the world. And it does. It makes all the difference in how we live. It makes all the difference in who we serve. And it makes all the difference in who preserves and maintains us. So the root of the matter is directly and essentially tied to his redeemer. God will defend me. God will avenge me. Job seems to have that sense. And what does this lead to? Well, we look lastly at Job's desire, right? Um, We look at Job's desire. Look at verse 27 again for me, with me. The end of verse 27 says, Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. But look at the end. How my heart yearns within me. 
As Job thinks about this message, this good news gospel message that he wants recorded for all generations to see, as he records these things and he speaks about his Redeemer, he speaks about his resurrection, he speaks about being preserved by God, he speaks about being in the very presence of Almighty God, Job's heart is ignited to praise God and it's ignited with a desire to be with God. Job here is not saying, oh, things are terrible and I want to die like he did earlier. Now, having thought about God, having thought about this God's plan of salvation, after thinking about his Redeemer, now it's different. Now Job wants to go and be with the Redeemer, who he loves, but he does not see. His heart is ignited to praise God with a desire to be with him. For to depart and be with Christ is very much better. He has an exciting, excited longing to be with God. We ought to have an excited longing to be with God. Not just to quit because the government stinks and, you know, my finances stink and, you know, my kids stink, if that's your issue, whatever. It's, it's your desire to be with God. We should have a desire to depart and be with God, right? That was Job's desire here. All right. So, how should we apply these things? That's the question. I alluded to this earlier, but some here, no doubt, may be thinking, but I am, cannot be good like Job. And I say respectfully, that's, just, that's it, you got it. You can't be. And frankly, neither was Job. Job never rested on Job to be pleasing in God's sight. Job rested on God to be pleasing in God's sight. The good news for Job was entirely, completely wrapped up in God's free and unmerited favor, which he gives to all that seek him. Remember, Job is the one who said, I would beg mercy of my judge. You can aspire to be like Job, but it's only by grace that Job was Job. You know, sometimes we hear this where people will say, well, you should learn to be a Daniel or to learn to be a Job. Daniel was Daniel. Because of God's grace. Period. Job is Job because of God's grace. Without God's hand, Job is like the rest of us, down, sinful, deserving God's wrath. So don't compare yourself against Job. Flee to Christ. Secondly, Job's example demands that we examine how we respond to trials and calamities and where the priorities of our hearts lie. The scriptures tell us to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Let our, let our request be made known to God, right? How do we respond to trials? Do we, first of all, even think for a moment that God has sent this to sanctify me somehow or to prove the power of his grace to some doubting person? Is God designing his own glory in this? Is God showing me something I need to learn? How are we responding to our trials and difficulties, right? This is not the health and prosperity gospel. We're not telling you believe Jesus and everything's going to be hunky-dory. This is life. It's, it's not always pretty. But if God allows things to come into your life or brings things into your life that are hard, what do you do with them? Job went to God. Job trusted God. We need to do that. Now, I ask the question, have you suffered in any measure like Job suffered? And there is nothing new under the sun. Some of us have and will suffer. Some of us, 
perhaps have not yet suffered and may suffer in the future, right? But have we suffered like Job? If you've suffered like Job or are suffering like Job, nothing that I've said mitigates the reality that your suffering is real. We're not trying to say you're making a molehill out of nothing. It's not the case. If you're suffering just like Job suffered, it was hard. Job cried out to God in his anguish. At times he despaired of life. But if you're suffering, have you willingly submitted to God's providences? And have you cried out and trusted him regarding his promises? Can you say with Job in your heart, though he slay me, yet will I trust him? Right? We need to do that. How should we think about the value of human life? And this is a little bit inferent. Brought in by inference, but I will say it. I said earlier, Job despaired even to life. But it is necessary to point out, he did not commit self-murder. Job feared God. And while he longed for the end of his life, he would not take up his hand and sin against God by harming himself. If Job lived today, there would no doubt be many people that would tell him, you've got the right to end it. You should end it. You're in control. But Job feared God. And thankfully for Mr. Job, he did. Right? He did not take the cowardly way out. Job's patient endurance of the trial and his unfailing faith in his God and Redeemer resulted in his restoration, a closer walk with God, and a richer, deeper knowledge of who God is. Had he ended it all, he would have missed out on many magnificent blessings. Job said to God, Your hands have made me. This is, again, another aspect of the sanctity of human life. Job said to God, your hands have made me and fashioned me an intricate unity. Whatever all that means, whether it's the cells and the skin and the bones, or whether it's the body and the soul, which I suspect it may be, you made me an intricate unity. And so I would say, as we just think about Job, he think about his love for God, his value in human life. No doubt he would stand with us and say, abortion is wrong. We should not take the life of those made in the image of God, right? So if we know a woman tormented by the memory of an abortion, we should point her to God. If we know a woman wrestling with temptation towards that, we should plead with her and point her to Christ. But we should be compassionate And we should value human life the way God values human life. Fifthly, do we trust God as Job did to preserve you to the end? Is God's grace sufficient for you? Is it true that these temporary light afflictions are worthy to be compared compared with the glory that shall be revealed? Do we trust God to the end? Do not just trust him occasionally, not just trust him in the little times, Sometimes we think about patience and we think, well, patience is when I'm on my way to the mall and I'm three cars behind in the light and the guy in front doesn't go in at first, so i got to sit here again. And we think we need patience for that. That's not what Job was talking about. Job, Job had issues in life, hard, heavy, life-altering things that happened to him, and he trusted God and entrusted God to the very end. The other thing I think we need to say is this. Job lived according to the light that he had. He was early in redemptive history. He didn't have all of the scripture, the whole canon of scripture worked out in front of him. He didn't have generations of seeing the truth preached. 
Job had the gospel in seed form, and still it transformed his life. If we have the gospel, if we believe the gospel, it should transform our lives. We have the prophetic word made more sure. We have the complete canon of scripture. Scripture. We have the knowledge of Jesus Christ and are confident of his coming return. How then shall we live? And I'm going to make sure I'm saying finally right. Okay, so finally, and this one's a little bit lengthy. Because Job showed to us a real burden for the lost. And I want to challenge us. Challenge myself. Challenge you. Do you have a burden for the unconverted? Are you, like Job, desiring to tell them about the Redeemer? And I know, I can almost hear it in my my ears. Someone will say, but I don't know what to say. And at the risk of sounding flippant, I just want to say, really? Let's look at what we do know in a very simple fashion. You know that God made man upright, but man sought many devices. You know that God created man and woman in his own image, and in that state man was good and holy. You know that Adam was warned that disobeying God would result in death, and by the one man's sin death entered in, and all died because all sinned in Adam and then individually. You know that God purposed and promised to provide a redemption for his remnant. You know that God prepared Israel for the coming Messiah through many types and shadows, You know that God revealed himself in the Holy Scriptures and showed us good and holy laws. You know that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have missed the mark, transgressed his laws, and insulted him. You know that there is none good, no, not one, and every soul that sins must die. You know that it is appointed once unto men to die and then the judgment. You know that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You know that the eternal Son of God set aside his glory for a season and took to himself a human body and came to save sinners. You know Jesus was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, but in love he drew near and served sinners. You know that Jesus obeyed every commandment and never sinned. You know that he had the power to lay down his life and the power to take it up again. You know that Jesus suffered and died on the cross, bearing his Father's wrath in the place of sinners. You know that his sacrifice was accepted, which he demonstrated by rising from the dead. You know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You know that no one goes to the Father but through Jesus. You know that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, uh, but on the appointed day of judgment is coming again to judge the living and the dead. You know that all men shall rise in the resurrection, some to the resurrection of life, and some to the resurrection of death or judgment. You know that Jesus is the only mediator between God and men, the only Savior of sinners, You know Jesus, but you don't know what to say? Really? We need to tell people this. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, and you know all these things, you know enough to be saved. In closing, and in the light of all we've considered, I encourage you to seek the Lord while he may be found. Run to him, and you will find rest for your souls. And to those of us who already believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I say, along with Jude of old, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Amen. Please join with me as we close in prayer.